Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Good morning. On April 10th, 1922, Critical, and it's WBT, WBT Charlotte, North Carolina. Was born. And I remember we would listen to WBT. Yeah, this is a big broadcast for WBT. Let's call it that day out there. What do you want to hear tonight? Hello, WBT. You're on the air. Hello, Bob Lacey. Hello there, neighbor. Hello, first timer. Taken by Trapuca. Let's go! Hurricane Hugo has made landfall. Yeah, no power. No information coming into the station other than the telephone. It's a very special radio station because people care. It's the John Hancock radio program. Carolina Panthers have been named the NFL's newest expansion. <laughs> their first touchdown. Bank of America Stadium. Kind of jumping back and forth in our coverage what here. a long, strange trip. It's still Throw in. me in the pool, please. Ray Carew's managed to evade police. I'm David Chadwick. The plane has now crashed into the World Trade Center. Uh, it would appear purposeful. We'll be the first to welcome you to our little club thingy. Bam. I'm Stacey Sims. Charlotte's Mr. Wright. Carolina Panthers are headed to Super Bowl 50. What's going to be the impact? We may of this? see some serious issues here at midnight. We're providing insight that they're not getting anywhere else. Mr. Trump, welcome to Charlotte Radio. Good morning, Bob. Hey, gather around, my friends, in this mythical ballot. WBT. The great colossus of the South. Through the years. I love this radio station as much as you guys do, but I love this radio station because of you guys. This powerful voice of the good stuff. This is Bo Thompson's Century Podcast. And welcome to episode eight of my Century Podcast series. Thank you to everybody for listening to these podcasts over the last couple of years. Uh, we have really gotten great feedback. Uh, the numbers, as far as downloads, look really good, and it looks like you're enjoying this project that I have uh, embarked upon as we get closer to our 100th anniversary for the Great Colossus coming up in 2022. This podcast this time is going to be a little bit different than what you're used to hearing in the previous seven episodes, simply because my interview subject is no longer with us. Henry Bogan passed away in 2006. Now, I was lucky enough to get to know Henry. In fact, Henry was my doorway into the station. The first time I ever darkened the door of one Julian Price place, it was because Henry allowed me to come out there and watch his show one night. And by way of Henry, I met a lot of other people who were instrumental in me doing this for a living. But Henry was the first uh, that I met. And Henry was actually the first that I heard on WBT on local radio here as I was growing up. So uh, I did know him. Uh, I knew him fairly well, actually. The first job I ever had here, uh, paying capacity, was as a substitute call screener for Henry's show, the Hello Henry show. And the very first time I ever darkened the door of the station, that day that I met him, I told him about uh, something that I'm sure a lot of people who have ended up doing radio as a professional career, I'm sure I'm not the only one who did this, but I used to have, you know, a make-believe radio station that I would uh, create in my room at night, and that's how I practiced, and that's how I honed my skills, uh, someday hoping to do it for real, or somebody paid me. Well, the name of the station, I don't know why I named it this, but I did, was WSN10. <laughs> so three letters and two numbers. But that was what I did when I was a kid. I said, I'm Bo Thompson on WSN 10. Well, uh, Henry was nice enough that day when I came out and watched him do his show. Uh, we went in the studio as he was showing me around, and I convinced him to do a promo with me for my practice make-believe station. And yes, I still have the tape. I don't think I've ever played this for anybody anywhere in a public setting. But here for the Century Podcast, where else am I going to find a fitting place for this? This is Henry Bogan, also more or less from WBT Radio, and one of my favorite radio stations. You know what it is? WSN 10. It's 107 FM. It's Charlotte's best top 40 station. And here is the owner, manager, and star personality, Bo Thompson. This is 107.9 WSN 10 Charlotte. Uh, Bo, do we get uh, paid for this? We'll see about that. <laughs> 
<laughs> See, when you all hear me talking about being 16 when I first started at this station, there's your proof right there. And I never paid him for anything, but he continued to get paid by the station, and ultimately, so did I. So you can see uh, the effect, the inspiration that this man was to me in my career. And so, although I can't interview him now in 2020 for this Century podcast, I certainly can pay tribute to Henry Bogan. And that's what I'm going to do over the next hour or so. I've uh, spent some time curating some of the incredible interviews that he did with some big time names, all of them household names that you will know very well. And he talked to him just like he was talking to a caller from Belmont, you know, or from Concord. That was the beauty of the Hello Henry show. So I hope you enjoy episode eight of my Century podcast, The Lost Interviews of Hello Henry Bogan. In the fall of 1979, Greensboro Radio's best-known personality moved to Charlotte to host a nighttime telephone talk show. This is WBT in Charlotte, North Carolina, the program called Hello, Henry. This is old Henry. Hello. Hey, Henry. The native North Carolinian rapidly became one of Charlotte's most popular radio voices. Hello. First-time caller. Hello, (laughs) first-timer. And the goose says hello to you, too. How you doing? Fine, my friend. Thank you. Henry Bogan launched the Hello, Henry Show where regular people were just as important as celebrities and politicians. Hello, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Uh, We're certainly glad you're here in Charlotte where we can get you a whole lot. And very easy on WBT because that's the best station in town anyway. Oh, thank you. I think so, too. Make no mistake about it. Henry talked to some big names. Hello there, Bob Hope. Hello, Henry. How are you, my friend? Yes, who's sitting across the table from me right this very moment, even as we talk, ladies and gentlemen? Andy Griffith. Hello, Andy. Hello, Henry. How you doing? <laughs> Just fine. Hello, Ray Charles. Uh, hello, Henry. How you been? I'm doing fine. I've been looking forward to saying this for a long, long time. Hello, Charlton Heston. Hello, Henry. But the real stars of the show were his thousands of devoted callers, some from Mecklenburg and others from up and down the eastern seaboard. Hi, caller. Henry here. You're on the good old WBT. Hello, brother Henry. Is that Sister Pearl? I sure gonna miss you, Henry. Lord knows you've been a inspiration. You had the best show on the air. You could bring out some good old instant things, you know. I let you on to you in about 88, and from then on, you were a friend, and at the time, you didn't know how much you were helping me. When the white azaleas start Every time I go out and pick me up, baby, homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes, what'll I be without homegrown tomatoes? Only two things that money came by, and that's true love, homegrown tomatoes. Hello, Henry from Belmont. Caught me eating a bedtime snack. Uh Uh-oh, what is it, Hen? (laughs) A big old chocolate chip cookie. (laughs) Do you remember what a fascinator is or was? I can use fascinate in a sentence. All right, let me hear. My daddy had eight buttons on his vest, but he could only... No, had nine buttons on his vest, but he could only fascinate. Wonderful, Henry. (laughs) We're going to have some fun on Friday night. I'll tell you one thing. Speaking of fun, when you say the magic name of Chevy Chase, you are saying, in essence, fun to a lot of people. And I want to say it right now. Fun. Hello, Chevy Chase. Hello. Hello, Henry. Hello. Are you there? Are you there? Yes, I are here. Where am I? Well, I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina, and probably you are in Los Angeles, California. That's right. How you not, doing? Not bad. Thank you, Chevy, for talking to us tonight. Happy to. Let me let me ask you about uh, your movie career because it has the, the the movie with Goldie was just outstanding. Thank you. I, I thought that was one coming out right, uh, right away on the, on the December third. Uh, Wh- what's it called, Chef? Like old times. It's a Neil Simon movie. Oh my gosh! And it's uh, it's terrific. I just saw a screening of it. I really like it. Who's who's in this with you? Goldie Hawn and Chuck Roden. Oh my golly! You're in pretty good. Let's see. I'm a good you, hand. You got a pretty good writer. Oh, yeah. I would say. Pretty good, I'd say. And you got two pretty good co-stars, I would say. I would say they were pretty good. Now, in between those two good movies, there was a thing with the Benji movie. There was a dog movie and a golf movie. <laughs> well, that's right. Caddyshack was a tremendous success, too. I've forgotten that. Yeah, that's become a, uh, quite a success. Oh, it's going to be a cult film. I guarantee it. Yeah. Guarantee it. A great success. But let me go back to the Benji thing. Why did you do that movie? Oh, why not? Well. The dog. 
Anybody should do it. My gosh, but somebody came to you and said, before you die, I'm going to allow you to do the voice or the, you know, thoughts of a dog. <laughs> He's an incredible dog. Incidentally. Oh, isn't he? Uh, and, you know, you love children and you love animals. I mean, it's just one of those things you want to tell your grandchildren about. And there's certainly no, in other words, um, the business expression would be downside. The downside would be if it were to hurt quote a career but i don't think in terms of career since i don't like any job too, too long anyway and uh so there's no no career really there to hurt it's, or help it's just that's what i do it's as much fun making that movie as anything else you know it's uh, it's fun and in fact uh i don't know whether it's opened up a lot of places or not the funny thing is i've never seen the movie i've never seen it hmm i did uh you know i mean for first uh, i guess 15 minutes or so and then I went rushed down to do Caddyshack and they finished the movie with the dog and Omar Sharif and the gang and um, <laughs> later on when I was here working on Seems Like Old Times and finishing up mixing the album I'd have to go over there and other evenings and do what they call looping put the dog's voice in just mm -hmm. some pictures you know and I uh, really never got the whole story straight they'd rewritten much of the dog's voice after having shot him and uh, now I understand they're shooting him again the machine gun <laughs> so what we say here, I guess, is it was a learning process. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was, it was, it was great fun. That movie. I, I hear it's pretty good, actually. From people who've seen it on an airplane. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. What, what you said you don't like to do things too long at one time in, in, in your career. Um, yeah, I don't have a career. Is what I'm trying to. Okay. Say. In other words, uh, you just do what you feel is the right thing at the right time. Well, it's not quite that. Uh, gratuitous or, or seemingly arbitrary. It's it's that I I really have fun doing what I've been doing all my life, just writing comedy and, mm -hmm. uh, and performing it. And um, I never had any aspiration or, or, or specific goal of mine. I didn't want to be a movie star or a TV star. It never occurred to me. I was writing at the time, and I had a lot of experience doing that and a lot of awards for it. And I was the head writer of the Saturday Night Show. So you know when I gave. I was given the opportunity to do more writing and performing of my material. It just made it more fun. But it's not as if I I couldn't wait to be at the tippy top and, uh, and then take a plummet or something. It doesn't matter to me. It's, uh, so it happened. It's all fun. Yeah, you were doing things you enjoyed and it happened. Sure. If it happens that you are going to be someday a producer and director, would that be good to you too? I don't think so necessarily because... Um, I've already been asked many times to direct and produce and, I, and I've produced a couple of things here and there. I, I don't have any great desire to direct it, unless it's an, an amazing project and, and I find that I'm interested in directing. But at this point, what I'm interested in doing is writing and, and performing. Is there burning in your breast the desire to play King Lear or Lord Hamlet or something like that? There's burning in my breast a small version of King Lear, uh, which I'm going to throw out the window. No, I don't have any desire to do anything serious like that. That'd be silly. Uh, I, it's not what I do. I think that sense of humor is... Uh, you know, sense of perspective and sense of priorities and it's a very important quality in human beings and that working in that area for me is more enlightening than it would be to be able to say, hey, look what a good actor I am. I can do King Lear. I'd rather read Shakespeare than be in one of them. Chevy, looking back on uh, on uh, the folks who are no longer with, the, the primetime players who are no longer with Saturday Night Live. Hello, Henry? Yeah. Hi, how are you? Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I forgot who it was. That's all right. Uh, I'm speaking to a town. I'm speaking to a small town in Maryland, folks. Uh, what do you think? Well, it's awfully hard to ask that question. But do, if you were in their position, was it time for them to leave that show? You think? Oh, it'd be hard to answer that. You know, for me, I thought it was time for for my life. You know, each one of them is an individual. And yeah. Don and and uh, Don and Danny had uh, had plenty of time there and had a good time. I'm sure that they were itching to get away and and try something else, like a movie, you know. And um, John's great success in Animal House and theirs and the Blues Brothers, that led to other things. So they seemed to me, for them, it, it was the right to expand and get out. And uh, I think, frankly, my feeling when I was on the show was that after the first year, it was time to quit. I, in fact, even said it to Lauren and the gang. I said, look, let's all dump it for a year anyway and go off and do something else and come back and have fresh ideas, because otherwise it's going to start going stale and uh, it's going to lose its innovative a novelty quality, you know, and um, uh, whether it's said that it does or doesn't by the press or, or watched more or not isn't the issue so much as, as us being as good as we can be. But on the other hand, uh, when I left, uh, that was my business. And for them, they stayed for four more years and it, and it was still great, you know, on occasion. I didn't, I never thought it was quite as good, but 
it had little to do with my leaving. I always thought it just wouldn't be quite as snappy uh, after the first year. But I'm not, uh, no, not everybody agrees with me on that, you know. Do you think that uh, Saturday Night Live had the impact that some critics have said it has on television? In other words, do you think it was a force in television in the, in the uh, 70s? I don't know. I, uh, I must say, I think we're talking about, even when I was there, I knew it, uh, the top of the minors, that is a late-night comedy program that does not affect in television, which is purely a, a commercial venture for people to sell products. It did not uh, affect the prime time rating schedule in any way whatsoever. So it had no specifically commercial uh, effect, except that later on, any shows that they attempted to do that were variety, either late night or earlier, uh, tended to copy the Saturday night format. I, I noticed that, but, you know, laughing had that impact, too. Mm -hmm. I don't think it changed the face of television. It changed my face. Uh, <laughs> From falling I, down so much. <laughs> I do think it was innovative. I do think it was unusual and different, but I don't think that that, uh, you know, that to, to make a big issue of changing the face is something that doesn't really ever change because it's always there for the same reason anyway is, is really something I could say it did. Henry took over nights from another WBT legend, Bob Lacey. The two talked back in 1982. Come on by and visit with us anytime. You're welcome. And, and one night, come back and we'll take some calls for a little while. Great. And one final story before I go. Okay. I knew this was coming. Hello, Henry has become so popular, he is now international. Maura Quinn, <laughs> I've told this story before, was doing a story in the Cayman Islands. That is down in the Caribbean. And she got off the plane and got in a cab, and the cab driver, who is uh, from the Cayman Islands, obviously, uh, said, where are you from? And she said, Charlotte, North Carolina. And he went, hello, Henry. <laughs> well, hello, Henry, hello. What do you know? Nice to hear your friendly voice. 1110 is certainly my choice, and WBT is now a big part of me, so hello there, Henry, hello. I have a conviction that we as adults don't fully understand the relationship between children and television, and the power it can be for good or for bad, and I think one man who can help us understand that, because he knows both so well, is our next special guest. He's Mr. Rogers. Hello, Fred Rogers. Hello, Henry. You know, I was just talking to a, a woman in the, uh, in the office here at our station before we talked to you, and she said, who are you talking to today? And I said, well, Mr. Rogers. And he said, I want to thank that man because he helped my relationship with my son because my son would sit there and talk to Mr. Rogers, and uh, it, it helped me and my son to get together better. And I think that's what you're saying, isn't it? Well, it is, Henry. And what it also says to me is that that is a, a very perceptive mother because if she watches what interests her child on television, then she'll know what is going on inside him better. Because if I'm talking about such a thing as a pet dying, and a child is just glued to that particular kind of drama, then it's possible that that child has concerns about death in his or her own life. But many parents have picked up on things that I have initiated on the program. And I feel that the neighborhood really is just a springboard for family communication. On our program, about once every month, we have uh, the first hour from 9 p.m. till 10 p.m., what we call Children's Night. Normally, Mr. Rogers, we don't have... We don't have people under 18 call because of the, the rules of the, the, the management is set down, and I don't argue with those rules. Yeah. But once a month, we have the young folks who are roughly 10 to 18 call, and we'll have a general question to get the conversation started, and then we'll just chat with them about various things. And we asked one question recently that rather disturbed me, or the answers did. I asked them, what are the things that worry you most or disturb you most? And I thought, like you and I did, will our bicycle spokes hold up for until next Saturday? Or will the girl next door notice us? Or could we go to the movie on Saturday? But their problems were nuclear destruction. Mm -hmm. They were afraid of. They were afraid of pollution. Mm -hmm. And it rather frightened me. Now, is that a normal thing for children these days to think about? Are we doing that to them? I have a feeling that that is the reason for the so-called me generation. I think that as we dropped the atomic bomb, we exploded something far, far greater than, than the, the nuclear ener 
some kind of uh, dream that you and I, I don't know how old you are, but I think we grew up realizing that there, there would definitely be a future. There would be a chance for people to have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And I think that the explosion of the bomb has told, in, in between the lines somehow, people, that that possibly may not be. And because of that, they think, well, let's just do it all now. Who knows what there'll be tomorrow? Mm-hmm. And it, I think it has to do with, with some people feeling that there's a limited future. Now, of course, I don't agree with this, because I don't think that, uh, that we are all that insane, that, that we're going to press some sort of a button and do away with civilization. But I do think that it's, it's somewhere dormant in the minds of teenagers and 20- and 30-year-olds. I say that in a purely personal way, but I have seen it so often, and, and there has been such anger at older generations for even allowing there to be such a thing as worldwide destruction and any wonder you um you have and i think our 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 folks are well aware that you have a nice slow distinctive way of speaking is that on purpose or is that just fred rogers uh in other words i guess my question is this do you talk to the children so they can understand you because their attention spans are so short and and they are frightened by loud sounds and that sort of thing no, I don't. I, I talk to them just as if I were being with them in the same room. You know, I talk the same way uh, in real life as I do on the neighborhood. And uh, I, I do not believe that if a child is interested in something, if that something is referring to what's going on within him at that particular moment of his life, I don't believe that they have a short attention span. I have been known to fill up a whole aquarium of water with a hose mm-hmm. without saying a word. Mm-hmm. And a child who has just recently been toilet trained, for instance, a child who is fascinated with how a container can be filled with water and not overflow, is fascinated in watching that. So the secret is to... To, to get into something they would enjoy and, and learn from and be fascinated by. Yes, the secret is to understand what's going on within their own lives so that you can respond in as creative a way as you know how. One more thing you don't do, and I admire you for this, you don't talk down to young people. Well, uh, I certainly couldn't do that. I have learned so much from children. They, they have been some of my best teachers. And in my time of working with children at the uh, Family and Children's Center here, uh, children offered me in their play interviews uh, things that I was able to use to help other children for years to come. Mm. Uh, I remember a little boy uh, playing uh, in, in a, a little playhouse with, uh, with these miniature life figures, these small dolls, and he, was, he would take the father up to the roof and let the father fall off the roof over and over again. And this little boy was really angry with his dad. Mm-hmm. And this was his way of playing about that. But he would always pick him up from the ground and he'd say, See, not dead. Mm. Well, uh, that little boy had fantasies about his father being dead, but he wanted to be sure that in his play, even though the play was intense, he wasn't killing him. What a, what a great story. I remember when we used to have, uh, I think once a month, on the old tel- uh, Hello Henry telephone talk show, would have an hour set aside, the first hour in the evening, once a month, for just children to call and talk. Hello there, caller. WBT, thanks for holding. Hi there, how are you tonight? I'm okay. Good. Henry's my name and you're on the air with me. Yeah, um, this is Gary Graham. Hello, Gary. Hey, 
Um, my dad told me to mention his name for some weird reason. <laughs> but, uh, What's his name, Gare? Gary Graham. That's his name too. Yeah. And you're and you're a junior. Yes. Oh yeah. Now you're Graham, right? Yeah. You don't make cookies, do you? Crackers. No. <laughs> a little joke there, Gary. Graham crackers, see. I'm glad you called. You are Charlottean. Huh? You live in Charlotte. Yeah. I'm glad you called, young man. Tell your daddy we said his name on the air too. Okay. Thank you, pal. Actually, listening in the other room. Well, hold on a second. Where's my goose, Wendell? Hold on a second. The goose is over here messing with a Pepsi bottle. <laughs> hold on. For Gary Sr. and Gary Jr., a concert by Queenie the Goose. Thank you. Thanks, Gare. Henry ultimately had a 17-year career at WBT, and he owned the nightly airwaves like no one before or since. But at the station's 80th anniversary in 2002, he talked about his initial nervousness. There were giants who walked these halls and the Wilder Building halls, and there were still giants here when I came, and I'm not sure, I was not sure then I fit in, that I could make it. Give me some time, give me a chance, and we'll grow on each other like moss or warts. <laughs> and, and, and it finally worked out, I think, okay. One of his longtime colleagues and best friends during their years at the station was Hall of Famer H.A. Thompson, who announced the Open to Henry's very first show. Welcome to WBT's nighttime telephone talk show. Hello, Henry, with host Henry Bogan. You are the star of this show. All you need is a radio, a telephone, and an opinion. Call area code 704-570-1110 and say... Hello, Henry. The number again is area code 704-570-1110. Hello. <laughs> Hello again. Henry Bogan here. And our telephones are open, and we want to make it a fun show and an interesting show. We want you to be a part of it. Give us a call. Our phone number is, as H.A. just told you, 704-570-1110 and 704-867-1110 from Gaston County. So the phones are open. We want you to call and visit with us and tell us what's on your mind. So with all that behind us, let's go to the phone. Take our first call here. Hello, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Uh, we're certainly glad you're here in Charlotte where we can get you a whole lot. And very easy on WBT because that's the best station in town anyway. Oh, thank you. I think so, too. Hello, Mr. Henry. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to set my Rolls Royce and eat cornbread and collard greens. I know that I'm getting money <laughs> for my cornbread fund. Hey, Rojo, hello. Mr. Henry, I trust you. No, I well, trust do you really? All right, now listen to yeah, me. I trust Rojo. Yes, sir. Good night. Goodbye. Guess who's sitting across the table from me right this very moment, even as we talk, ladies and gentlemen? Andy Griffith. Hello, Andy. Hello, Henry. How you doing? <laughs> Just fine. You know what he's doing? I'm going to let him a little secret here. We don't we don't hide anything. Andy's looking through a trivia book about the old Andy Griffith show. And I'm, you told me something interesting. You said some of the things you didn't remember about those days either. No, I didn't. But I'm looking at a picture here where it says, Barney shows Andy a new judo hold. And I've got him by the throat. <laughs> and I'm looking at the scenery behind it. And I think that must have been... Uh, either a nightclub show we did, Don and I did do a show together in nightclub, oh, I or that. it was a television special, because that is not our Mayberry Jail set. Uh-huh. Uh, there's uh -huh. a trivia. Yeah, huh? it is. <laughs> it? Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, somebody it, asked me to uh, ask you when you came on the show tonight uh, about... Um, the towns. Um, in fact, this caller called from uh, Pennsylvania and said, is there in North Carolina a real Mount Pilot? And I said, no, there's a, there's a Mount Airy and there's a Pilot Mountain. Pilot Mountain. But there's not a, pilot, a Mount Pilot. We, um, let me try to answer that if I can. Yeah. Uh, when we first started that show, uh, a lot of changes took place over the years. And when we f when we first started, I was supposed to be funny, and it became apparent that Don Knotts should be funny by the second episode. And they didn't want anybody to pinpoint where Mayberry was or where we were talking about. Even the state, Andy? They didn't want that. Sheldon Leonard didn't want that, and he was the executive producer of that show. He was the boss. Mm -hmm. And 
I used to like shows like Lassie and things, but they used to talk about going to places like Central City. Mm-hmm. And that sounded so made up to mm-hmm. me. I guess there is a Central City somewhere that I didn't want to talk about that. So very gradually, I started slipping in real names of real towns in North Carolina. And finally, we just started saying North Carolina. And that was so, it. Yep, that's the way we did it. Originally, we didn't talk about North Carolina, but gradually, I did. You occasionally mentioned Charlotte and Raleigh. Charlotte and Raleigh and yeah. Siler City mm-hmm. and Asheville. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mount Pilot, <clears throat> I think that may have been the first one. And they said, no, don't call it Pilot Mountain, call it Mount Pilot. Yeah. So yeah. it became Mount Pilot, and that became a fixture. As you may know, my friend, we're heard in Mount Airy. And we're heard in Goldsboro, where you worked as a, as a teacher, as a teacher, and a, I guess chorus and band instructor too. I, no, I didn't teach band. They had another fellow doing that. I taught. Uh, I taught. I went there as Clifton Britton. He was the drama teacher. I went there as his assistant to build up the choral music department so he could do musical plays, mm. <laughs> and we did. We're heard in Chapel Hill. Good. And occasionally we're heard out where you live now, part-time, out on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Uh-huh. So uh, I hope all your friends are listening to you right now. By the way, those of you who are saying, he sounds just like Andy Griffith. He is Andy Griffith, and he looks like Andy. Uh, a little gray in the hair, but otherwise just like he was on the television. Hi, this is WBT, and you're on the air on the Hello Henry Show with Andy Griffith. Hi, Andy. Yes, ma'am. Hi. How are you? Hi. Guys, I can't believe this. Uh, you know Ernest T. Bass? The guy played Ernest T. Bass on Andy Griffith? Yes. Howie uh, Morris was his name. Is his name. Yeah. Um, whatever happened to him? Oh, he's a director out there. Believe oh, really? it or not. Yeah. Is he's, he always as silly as what he was on that show oh, when he's he played a, Ernest T. Bass? Uh, well, uh, most of our people that appear so silly and, 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 and dumb are really bright people. For instance, Don Knotts, who played Barney Fife, is one of the brightest men I've ever known. Yeah? Yeah, and rarely ever drops anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, I, I want you to know that I watch Andy Griffith every day at 5 o'clock. I just I have to watch it every day. That's my nice. My favorite show. Thank you. Um, listen, um, would you say hello to my little girl? Sure. What's her name? Nikki. Okay. Okay, here. Hello. Hi, Nikki. How are you doing, kid? Fine. That's good. How old are you, kiddo? Nine. Nine. That's good. It's old enough to vote. (laughs) (laughs) Nikki, you like Andy? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. I like it, too. Do you? Good for you. Thank you, sweetheart. Thank you, Nikki. Okay. Tell your mama bye-bye for us. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Bye, Nikki. Okay. Bye. I, I, I want to say I wasn't being nosy, but I am being nosy. Don't give me any figures, if any. But do you guys still get a little money for the reruns and the, and the syndication? Uh, I forget how many an actor gets. Uh, I forget. I don't remember how many plays an actor gets. Uh, I was lucky. Um, I was one of the owners. Mm-hmm. Not the only owner, but one of the owners of, of the show when it came in. And that's one of the things that gave me... The, what do you call it, clout to, um, well, I also had some good friends who wanted to keep it, uh, make it a show that we liked and were proud of. Don Knotts was one of them. Mm-hmm. And um, Well, your input was obvious. When we talked in our phone call a year and a half, two years ago, we mentioned that, that the accents were real and the, the, the phraseology was real. And that doesn't happen all, the, all that well, often. Well, in, in the very beginning, I was really Southern, uh, more Southern than I needed to be. And, From the Danny Thomas days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, uh, a lady wrote, a school teacher wrote and said, do you have to use such incorrect English? And I said, yes, it's part of the character. And then I got to thinking it's not part of the character Mm -hmm. so uh because i hold a college degree myself so uh, i i started and i started making my character less hickey which i think is Mm -hmm. good for the Mm -hmm. south exactly (laughs) my friend i I know you're awfully tired and busy you've been running your legs off since you got into area and i thank you very much for standing with us tonight and visiting with our people and giving us a chance to thank you for all the fun over the years and looking forward to the fun and the entertainment that's coming from you over the next 20 or 30 years i hope so but thank thank you henry for the uh, for the opportunity andy thank you my friend my pleasure good health to you
I'm going to say two phrases, and you folks listening will know instantly who our very special guest is. You ready? Sing the song, children, and the genius. Of course, he's Ray Charles. Hello, Ray Charles. Uh, hello, Henry. How you been? I'm doing fine. How do you feel today? Well, I feel just great. I, I must tell you truly, I, I feel wonderful. We try to keep the music, you know, going along, flowing along well, but the point is, uh, for me, is to continue to record and to perform good music, you know, because I find that that's the key to my to my career, man. The public has supported me all these years, almost 40 years, and I have to tell you, I don't know too many people have been out here as long as I have. <laughs> I don't know too many. So I feel that the reason for that is because we, you know, I, I, I give all I got. Anytime, anytime I'm, whether I'm recording or whether I'm performing, I'm, I, I give everything I have, and I think that the public uh, knows that. You know, uh, I'm glad you said that, because I'm afraid some of the younger folks today who uh, perform and have one or two hits and then disappear, I think part of their problem is they don't give enough. They have a kind of an arrogance that comes across the stage lights. Well, you know, that's because maybe, at least I feel, I don't really know, but I feel that that's because a lot of the youngsters that are coming up today didn't have any training, any real training. You know, you know, it's, it's just like you know, it's just like a child that's, that's, that's coming in the, in the world. If he doesn't get the proper parental training, there's no telling how he may turn out. I mean, he may be. I'm not saying he's going to be good or bad, but you know, without the guidance, you know, you you you, you can a, a, a person can make an awful lot of mistakes. And I think it's the same thing in music. A lot of youngsters coming up now in difference to say when I was coming up, where I had a uh, I was around a lot of great musicians who who would chastise me and who would tell me, hey, man, you ain't playing nothing. And I'm just going to tell you right now. And that would hurt my feelings, and I'd go and cry, but I'd go and practice, too. I'd go and study, and I'd practice harder, and I'd try to develop what I was doing better. You see, you know, when you had, when you had people that could do that, and you could go to a lot of different places where you could hear good musicians play, this was all in the training thing, and you learned that you were never any greater than really what you were, or any greater than the public thought you were. Ray, you've got to have a place to, to, to foul up, haven't you? That's right. You've got to have a place to foul up and learn from your mistakes. Well, you see, that's, that's, the, whole, that's the whole thing, but I think when you, in, in, in today, if, 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 if you happen to be among the extreme few youngsters that come along, and record something, and you make a couple of hit, hit records. The the reason sometimes that, that, that the youngsters will will stray f uh, away further than they should is because it's not their fault. They they just don't know. They don't they don't realize yet. You know, I mean, they had too much happen to them too soon. If you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And everybody can't handle that quickness. You know, as uh, uh, as well. You know, some people fall apart when when they have a lot of things happen to them all at once. But I, but on the other hand, I I, I, I do feel, man, that that uh, with with, uh, with if the youngsters that are coming up, if they keep one thing in mind, that they owe everything that they do in music. If, they, if that's what they're into, they owe it to the people out there. You know, because people do not have to spend their money to come here. Oh, absolutely. Nobody else. Absolutely. I've seen people stand in the rain to spend their money to come here. Somebody. Well, let's face it. You know, I, I I'd be hard pressed. They want to spend money and stand in the rain for an hour to go hear somebody. I mean, it, it has to be. So, you know, when the public loves you that much, that they're willing to do that, I mean, it'd be bad enough if they, if they were getting in for free and standing in the rain. But when they're going to spend their money, too, I, I think that is about the ultimate of, of, of any uh, compliment that can be paid any artist. Absolutely. My friend, I know you don't like to get political, and I don't ask this question from a political standpoint, but what is your sense of America when you travel around the country and hear and listen and, and, and be with people? Are we, are we a more loving country than we were 20 years ago, or are we worse than we were or about the same as we were? I, I would like to think. Now, this, this is me, and I, and I, I guess some people will say I'm, I'm an over, 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 overly optimist or something, but... I would like to think that we are better off. I mean, I, I, at least I want to believe that. I, mean, I truly do, and, and because, you know, I've, I've seen a lot in my time. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that we, uh, obviously, uh, uh, we do not have and never will have a perfect society. I mean, but I can tell you this, out of all the different societies that I've been exposed to, and, and I've, I've been a lot of places in my time, 
I can tell you that in spite of her faults, and God knows she has faults, but this country is still, believe me when I tell you, man, we, we still, we, we're still number one. I mean, I don't care what anybody tells you, that faults and all, and, and we do some very stupid things from time to time. You know, we make some terrible mistakes. In other words, it's, it's, like a, it's like a mother loving her child. You know, she said, well, you know, he, 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 he does some very stupid things from time to time. But he's my child, and I love him. Because why? Overall, he's a good child. He's a good person, a good human being. And that's what's happening here. I, 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 I love this mother America, you know. It's a beautiful country. But, it, but you know, every now and then, I, I guess what makes our thoughts uh, become so momentous is because we are such a great country until, you know, when we do little stupid things, they're, they're magnified in the eyes of other people because they can't understand why we do them since we don't have to. You know what I mean? In other words, uh, you take a country like, 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 like America, that, you know, you, 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 you know all, the word America means all kinds of people. That should never be any kind of... I, I think people are still arguing about how kids can go to school. That, that should not be no arguing or, or discussing as to how... The, the kids should just go to school, period. That's all, because I found out one thing when I grew up in this When children come in the world, they don't know from nothing. They just learn from grown-ups. They learn everything from us. So, and, and I know when I was coming up, we kids used to play together, and we didn't know the difference until <laughs> our grown-ups. You see? So that's why, I, but I have to say, man, overall, as I look back over my life, <coughs> pardon me, in difference to today, I can honestly tell you there's a lot of difference today, say, when I was 15 or 20 years old, and it is now, and, and I'm 53 years old now, and I've seen a lots and lots and lots of changes made. So I, I, I think, to, to answer your question, and I went a long ways around the roses, I'm sorry for it, but I think what I'm trying to say is that overall, in spite of all the things, that, uh, the many things, I should put it that way, that we might have done that maybe we shouldn't have done, when I look at the overall situation, and you say, do I think we, we are any better off today? I'd have to say we are better off, but that does not mean that we should sit on our lawns and figure, hey, we're cool, because we're not. Boy, I feel like passing a collection plate. You just preached a sermon at me. <laughs> no, you really did. Well, I talked long enough. The Reverend Ray Charles. Now we're going to call him that. So hello When sportscasters like uh, Vin Scully, Dick Enberg, or Jim McKay receive their well-deserved awards, there is a man who should get at least a piece of each of those awards, for he almost single-handedly nudged sports spieling at least a step closer to real repertorial excellence, journalism, and a search for the truth. Join me in saying a very hearty hello, Henry. Welcome to Mr. Howard Cosell. Hello, Henry. I'm so glad we could talk. Well, it's my pleasure. Of all the people we've had on our potential list of uh, guests, and there have been some good ones on our show, you your name kind of heads the list. We've been working on you for about a year, and your 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 tight schedule has kind of precluded us getting together before now. Well, I'm here. Thank you very much. Let me ask you a question about uh, your background a little bit. I think I'm right in saying that you were born in or near Winston-Salem, North Carolina? I was born in Winston-Salem. Do you remember much about that area or this state, or did you move away when you were a young child? I moved away when I was a young child. I moved to Lynchburg, Virginia, though I did spend some time and remember dimly Raleigh, North Carolina, where my late father worked for a while, and I did always have relatives in Carolina, an uncle who was in Durham, North Carolina. Well, we consider you a Tar Heel born and a Tar Heel bred, and when you die, you'll be a Tar Heel dead. Well, I used to sing that. <laughs> I'll bet you did. Let me ask you about um, one of your particular skills I admire, and that is the interviewing process. You, you are excellent at that, as you well know, because so many people tell you that. But what is your secret if there is one? What is your technique for interviewing people so well? Only an interest in the people and a knowledge about them and uh, training at law which gives you uh, an orderly, sometimes meticulous flow to your questioning and uh, a probity that uh, one who's not versed in law or in a courtroom procedure might not have. 
On your program, Speaking of Everything, which I greatly admire, you have some very interesting and diverse guests uh, on your program. Uh, uh, one question comes to mind. Do you ever have someone with whom you are not, oh, what's the word, sympathetic or you do not have empathy for? In other words, you would, if you, if you rather, you would not sit down and talk with them? And if so, how do you handle such a situation? No, I have no uh, antipathy toward anybody that I interview. If I sit down with Bill Buckley, hmm. though we're widely disparate uh, uh, in our views on uh, the society and uh, the political structure and so on, I regard it as a challenge, and I love to talk with them. No, I don't, uh, I don't have that problem. Would it serve a useful purpose for the broadcast people to have a little page or, or a little, uh, I guess, segment of time to criticize the print media and tell them what they've done wrong and how inane and silly some of their articles and columns are as they do us? Yes, I think it would serve a great purpose. When Eric Severide left the industry, he half bemoaned the fact that uh, our medium had as its principal critic a competitive medium, and yet our medium does not dare criticize the print medium. I find it a failure of the broadcast medium. I find it a lack of courage of the broadcast medium, and I decry it. I think they should answer back at every opportunity and every time they feel that they are wrongly besmirched. You know, I'm sure, as well as anybody, perhaps more than most, that a lot of people in the world a lot of people in this country, indeed, when they see something in print, say, oh, well, that must be the truth. And it bothers me sometimes when I read things that really are not the truth. Does it you? Well, uh, I go back to Lerner and Lowe. Hmm. I've grown accustomed to that pace because <laughs> I've read enough about myself. And uh, I can't say that it any longer gets to me. Ten years ago, I couldn't have said that. But I know who I am and where I'm at. I'm at a point in time in my life where that's only natural. After having been in the business for 28 years now and having achieved whatever it is that I have achieved, which is for other people to judge, and I really don't much care any longer. I couldn't keep up with all of the lies written about me. The bad part of it is, is not, as you say, reading an item which is not true, and you may know it's not true. The bad part is the pickup system. Once written, it goes into a newspaper morgue file, and then will be picked up somewhere else and reiterated as a truth merely because it was printed. And passed along to the next generation. That's correct. Yeah. I, I guess we flail the print media enough. We'll move on to something happier now. And I don't consider it flailing them. <laughs> it's telling it like it is, huh? Exactly. So. <laughs> Let me ask you some, uh, some rather fan club type questions. Of all the sporting events you have covered in your career, which one was the most pleasurable and or most memorable personally to you? Well, the most memorable events I've been involved in have been the various Olympiads that I've been party to the coverage of. And probably the most horrible memory is uh, the Munich 11 and Building 31 in the 1972 Olympics. And Avery Brundage standing there and saying, let the games go on. And, uh, but I've got many such memories from the Olympiads, the Black Power Salute, the departure of the emerging black nations, the failure of Jim Ryan. The memories are very deep about the Olympic Games because they have to be. They transcend sports. They invade matters of uh, sociology, and, uh, even law. But uh, in terms of other kinds of events, well, I think, I don't think in terms of events, Henry. I think in terms of people, people who have mattered in sport to the society and in the construction of my own life. I must ask you in that regard, then, about Muhammad Ali. It seems that... Oh, he was one of those. Yeah, and he must be. Well, it... Muhammad Ali has been a very signal figure in my life and my career, and... Uh, I have always respected Ali, and I have always basically liked him, 
with certain misgivings. But uh, I saw him subjected to something that was totally un-American. And yet, to return to the print medium, 95% and more of the sports writers of this country supported what was done to him. On April 28, 1967, in Houston, Texas, he rejected military induction. There had been no grand jury presentment, no, no arraignment, no indictment, no trial, no conviction. No, in other words, due process of law had not even begun, guaranteed by the Fifth Amendment. And then they were licensing military deserters as fighters at the same time. And we have a 14th Amendment, equal protection under the laws. It took three and a half years before, finally, the Supreme Court of the United States vindicated him. And he could fight again. He had lost the best three and a half years of his career. He came back on March 8, 1971, after a tune-up in Atlanta against Quarry and another one against Bonavina in New York. And fought one of the greatest fights I ever saw. During those three and a half years, he never, Henry, wavered. Not once. And when he was finally vindicated, he didn't say to me with bitterness anything about the writers who had pilloried him, who didn't know one single thing about law, had never been in a law library, never read a case. All he said was, they didn't know better. They did what they thought was right. So naturally, I've got a lasting respect for the man. Sometimes, I think, maybe you'll deny this, sometimes you become the event and not the sport you're covering. Uh, do you agree with that premise? And if so, how do you feel about it personally? I feel that that's a total charade perpetrated by the sports print medium. If I became such a celebrity, who made me that? I didn't seek that. I carried a 45-pound tape recorder on my back before, in radio, before tape recorders became the instant instrument of flexibility and reportage that they became. I was the first. That's how you hear all the actualities on the air now. I paid my dues. I went from clubhouse to clubhouse. But even then, I was resisted and found hostility from sports writers because here was a new man in town and he was trying to get the very stories they were trying to get. And somehow, the print medium has been led to believe, by whom I don't know, that it has an inalienable right to an exclusive. They pulled that garbage on Jackie Robinson when he quit baseball. He was a man who had to go back to being a nobody. He was a black man, and he had broken bread in this country. And now, to get some money for the support of Rachel, his now widow, and his children, he took $25,000 for Look Magazine for his retirement story. You should have seen what the writers did to him. It was their story for nothing. How dare he? As if they were supporting him, his wife, and his child as he had to go about seeking a whole new career. And in those years, the highest salary Jackie Robinson ever made, perhaps the greatest all-around athlete this country has yet produced, was $35,000 a year. And he only got that one year of his life. So you see, I have paid my dues, and if I've been made into a celebrity, that's because they've made me. It's also because I have had things to say in my time, things about sports in a frame of reference that others had never done before and really are not doing yet. Now, if that be vanity, Henry, make the most of it. It also happens to be truth. I'm of an age when uh, I can remember very distinctly when the great majority, if not the entirety, of the sportscasters were shills and mouthpieces with the teams and, and even the sports they covered. And you have done little, I think, towards moving us away from that. And for that, I personally thank you. And one more thing. I want to thank Tara, your, your, your right hand there in the office, and your lovely wife for sharing you with us for a while because it's been a personal pleasure for me. Well, I've enjoyed it, Henry. You asked good questions, fair questions, and never be afraid to ask good and fair questions. 
Thank you, continued success, and more importantly, continued good health. Thank you, Henry. Goodbye now. Bye-bye. Here again, one of Henry Bogan's fellow WBT Hall of Famers, H.A. Thompson. A lot of us took a turn in Henry's chair on occasion, one or two nights, sometimes vacation, or he got sick or something like that. And that was a different challenge. It was another world. He came in 79. I finished in 91. And he went on for another five years. So we were connected. Here's the late, great Lunas McGlowan talking about Henry in 1996. Getting to meet Henry is like um, getting a, a bottle of Chateau Rochiel Lafitte 1961. Getting to meet him is like that. And getting to know him is like drinking it. And I thank you. And we can't forget the late Tom Desio. The success that I've had at WBT uh, is due to you because you uh, told your audience that I was a friend of yours and they accepted me as that and I've been a mighty, mighty lucky person by having you in my life and I mean that. You you want to borrow my car, don't you? Mm, Not really. That's what this is all about, isn't it? But uh, the great thing about it is that I won't have to put up with that blamed goose anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Henry. (laughs) This is a personal pleasure for me, folks, and and I I think you'll realize that when I start uh, falling all over myself with compliments for our next guest. But indeed, he's one of America's favorite people. Say hello to Dick Van Dyke. Hello, Dick. Hello, Henry. I'm glad we can talk to you, my buddy. I'll tell you that. Well, I'm glad to talk to you. I have been a fan of yours for a long, long time. Don't say how long. <laughs> oh, two years. <laughs> Since you first started, yeah. I can remember very distinctly, Dick, um, one of the scenes in the in the Dick Van Dyke show where you were starting out in Danville, Illinois, or at least Rob Petrie was. Yes. And you had a radio gig, and you were doing a remote from a window of a department store, I believe. I remember. Was that autobiographical at all? No, I never did exactly that. I did have a radio show in Danville, Illinois, when I was a very young man. And I used to do a man-on-the-street show, which was very popular in those days. Oh, yeah. I never did try to stay awake for 100 hours. <laughs> that was in, in, No, that's a tough job. Anything, because uh, in, I'm in radio, as you may know, anything interesting or bizarre or unusual or noteworthy happened to you in Danville or anywhere in radio? Uh, not in radio. I was, as a matter of fact, only in radio in Danville. I'd be there alone from 5 o'clock on. They closed down the store, and then I'd be there until it signed off the air. So I was the engineer and the news guy and the and the record guy <laughs> and everything. Yeah, but all the girls would call you and say, Dick, would you play a song for me? Uh, oh, yeah. It was better being a box boy at the supermarket. Oh, was it really? But the money wasn't as good. <laughs> I can understand. Hello, Henry. Hello, Wolfman. How you doing? Well, I'm feeling really good. I just flew in from Los Angeles. My arms are tired, but I'm doing all right. <laughs> That's terrific. I show up the old turnout, and you folks uh, come on in over and have a good time. Man, we're going to rock and roll there at the Union Hall, too. Look out, man. It's guaranteed. It's going to be a good time. Good time. Good time. Everybody go, ow! He is our collective favorite radio newscaster, and in a very real sense is a conscious uh, of us all. Here is Mr. Paul Harvey. Hello, American. Hello, Henry. And good morning, Americans. Nice to talk to you, sir. Thank you. My goodness, after an introduction like that, I, I, I feel like the fellow woke up on resurrection morning and he read all that fancy southern sweet talk on his tombstone. He said, you know, either somebody sure does exaggerate or I've been all these years in the wrong hole. <laughs> Henry retired from WBT and radio altogether in July of 1996. This is how his final sign-off sounded with longtime producer Wendell Black. Wendell, we have about 30 seconds to say goodbye to the folks, and I want to say goodbye to you because you've been really good to me and good for me and good for the radio station. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You mean you won't be back Monday? No, no I will not. Oh, That's I'll be the, back Monday. Uh, and, and Wendell, we stay with the station. Henry Bogan is my name, and listen, let me get real serious with you. You have been a lot to me, and you've been a family to me, and I thank you and cherish you forever. Uh, For one last time here on the Hello Henry Show as we say goodbye, let me do our uh, little close-off. Sleep warm, sleep well. Henry's final years were happy ones. He got married, he became very active in his church, and he made occasional appearances on WBT. His final one came about 10 years ago on the John Hancock Show. Well, you know, John, it's I've been very blessed. I've had to work with some really great people and for some great people. The, the most flattering thing people can tell to me is, I listen to you under the covers in the bed at night. A few months later, 
Henry passed away on April 20th, 2006. H.A. Thompson gave the eulogy at the funeral, and friends gathered to talk about Henry's legendary career that night on WBT. He really did. probably was the, one of the best read, best informed, most knowledgeable, most intelligent people I've ever met. You never ever. told him that, did you? Uh, no. We Most don't people don't know, but he had a genius uh, IQ. Really? And he could talk about anything to anybody at any time with no preparation. Henry Bogan was the true Carolina connection mm -hmm. for WBT. As the old jingle used to say, from Canada to Florida, Carolina and the USA, Henry Bogan was a nighttime institution on WBT. Henry Bogan here. It's been a pleasure visiting with you. And I'm going to close this little segment the way I used to close my old Hello Henry telephone talk show. Sleep warm, sleep well. He and his goose joined the WBT Hall of Fame in 2017 alongside John Hancock and Rockin' Ray Gooding. Move over, my lasses and ladders, and make way for your soul rockin' daddy. Rockin' Ray is my name, and taking care of the business is my claim to fame. My man, Henry Bogan. I'm Bo Thompson on the road to WBT's 100th anniversary. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on my Century Podcast.